One Sunday morning, a pastor was preaching to his congregation on the follies of sin. And he said, uh, lying is sin. And a couple men shouted out, amen. And he went on and he said, uh, cheating is sin. Amen. Um, stealing is sin. Amen. Not spending enough time with your family is sin. Silence. One man turned to his friend and he said, he stopped preaching and gone to meddling. <laughs> well, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is one of those meddling passages. It's Romans chapter 3, the first part of the chapter. We have been studying this section of Romans for several weeks now. We're in the first major section of the book that deals with the need for God's righteousness that begins in chapter 1, verse 18, and goes through chapter 3 and verse 20. Paul began this section by explaining the need of all people for God's righteousness, that we do not have it ourselves. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And then he talked about the fact that even good people need the righteousness of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 8. And in the beginning of this section, he explained the need um, that uh, people have to understand the principles by which God will judge us. In uh, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, and then went on to zero in on self-righteous people in particular in verses 17 through 29. Uh, as we explained last time we were together and studied this portion of Scripture, in Paul's day, the Jewish people were the most self-righteous uh, people that he, he had dealings with. And so he, he talks to them as Jews, but really he's talking about people who feel self-righteous, not just Jews, racially, ethnically, but people who think they're okay with God because they have not committed gross sin of some kind. And uh, today we're going to look at the first part of chapter 3, which contains answers to objections that one could raise in response to what Paul has said in the preceding section about the, the need of self-righteous people for God's righteousness. And he raises four objections and answers them in the first part of this section. The first one is in verses 1 and 2. These are answers to objections that Jews would have made in Paul's day and that self-righteous people still make today when being confronted with the fact that they are not really right with God. So he explains God's dealings with self-righteous people. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? In the previous section, Paul mentioned that Jews would be judged just like Gentiles. And yet in the Old Testament, of course, there is much indication that God had special regard for the Jews. 
They were privileged people. The Old Testament regarded the Jews as privileged in many ways. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to review some of those great privileges that the Jews have compared to to non-Jews. And so the objector says, what about these advantages? Uh, If everybody's on the same level, if God is dealing with everybody the same, Jews and Gentiles alike, self-righteous and non-righteous, what about the advantage that a Jew has? What is the benefit of circumcision? Uh, Circumcision was the mark of a Jew and indicated that he was specially privileged by God. He had the covenants that God gave to Abraham. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Well, advantages are great in every respect for the Jews. First of all, that they, are, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. One of the great advantages that Jewish people have is that they received God's word. God's word has come through Jewish people to us. The whole Old Testament has come to us through Jews. All of them were uh, Jews or had strong connections with Jews. And so they were blessed in, in that regard. Perhaps today one would say, because God has blessed me, he won't condemn me. This could be an equivalent objection. Because God has blessed me, he won't condemn me. Because I live in a country that has been blessed by God, because God has given me a lot of supports in my life, because I enjoy a measure of affluence in my life, perhaps, because I have supporting friends, um, because I have the Bible, because I can go to a good church. He won't condemn me. And a lot of people are trusting in those things to make them acceptable to God. But, of course, that's not what makes one acceptable to God. Though even, even though we do have those advantages, yet God will judge us equally with everyone else. The second objection comes in verses 3 and 4. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God to all Israel. Will it? Now, this objection is that uh, since some in Israel did not believe God, is God going to be unfaithful to his promises to the whole nation? That's a conclusion that one might draw if God was going to deal with everybody, Jews and Gentiles, on the same basis. And Paul responds to that, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, true to his promises, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy words and mightest prevail when thou art judged." A modern equivalent of this question might be, God's character precludes his condemning me. He won't condemn me because he is faithful, right? 
Well, he certainly is faithful. But uh, when those who have not believed in him fail to believe, he will faithfully judge. He is true to his character. It does not preclude condemnation. It guarantees condemnation. Then the third objection is in verses 5 and 6. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? If by sinning we make God's sinlessness all the more clear, isn't God unfair to punish us for sinning? In a sense, my sinning glorifies God. It shows him to be absolutely sinless. So, isn't God unfair in uh, dealing with that? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then Paul adds, I am speaking in human terms. In other words, I'm using a human argument. I don't want you to understand that I'm saying that God is unrighteous here. I'm simply arguing from that point of view. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? God can't show favors and be be just at the same time. A modern equivalent of this objection might be, God will be merciful and not condemn me even though I've sinned. No, that's not true. God is merciful, but still he must judge sin. And then the fourth objection is in verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory... Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. People who have that attitude can be sure that their condemnation will be just. And this is a similar objection to the one before. Let us do evil that good may come. Uh, In the case of the Jews, of course, doing evil was uh, sinning by not being circumcised. But uh, as Paul stated earlier, God will overlook uncircumcision, but he will not overlook sin. Chapter 2, verse 26, for example, If therefore the uncircumcised man keep the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge? You who, have, who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew, and you remember the play on words here, he is not a praiser of God who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is one who praises God genuinely, who is one inwardly, And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Some might say today, since my sinning glorifies God, he would be unjust to condemn me. No, that's not true. Uh, Paul was being falsely accused of a similar statement. 
when he discouraged people from being circumcised. Uh, And they were concluding that because he discouraged them from being circumcised, he was encouraging them to sin. No, circumcision and sin, uh, uncircumcision and sin are not equivalent. In our case, it's, uh, it's possible for us to sin just. And there are some people who believe that, actually. It may seem hard to believe, but uh, some people justify their sin on that basis. Uh, the Russian priest Rasputin was such a person. Uh, he believed that by sinning, people glorified God all the more. And so he counseled people to get into all kinds of depraved sin in order to glorify God more. And I haven't heard that argument recently in our culture, fortunately, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's just around the bend. (laughs) We may hear it coming up pretty soon. Well, Paul says the end doesn't justify the means. Let us do evil that good may come? No. The end does not justify the means. Then he goes on to explain the guilt of all humanity. And he supports this with scripture. He's coming to a conclusion of this section, and he uses Old Testament passages, seven of them, all from the Psalms, interestingly, to uh, draw the net, so to speak, and to bring this subject of our guilt before God to a climax and conclusion. What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than they Greeks? He's still still speaking specifically to the Jews here, who are the self-righteous people of his day. Are we better than, than the Greeks who don't profess to be more righteous? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We're all under its condemnation and even under its domination. Everybody, Jews and Greeks, people of all types, ethnicity, background, nationality, gender, uh, has no effect on this whatsoever. We are all under sin. And then he quotes these seven passages that state this very thing from the Old Testament. Now you'll notice that in verses 10 through 12, which are the first two quotations, he emphasizes sin's universality. That is, that every person, every person without exception, is guilty of sin. There is none righteous No, not even one. Not even one person is righteous in and of himself or herself. I read this uh, not too long ago by uh, an author who I couldn't identify. He wrote, The gospel is good news, but it has meaning only after we have faced the bad news of our sin. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's confronting us with the fact that we are in bad trouble with God. Sin, that, that is an ugly word. Terms like complexes, mistakes, errors, and weaknesses are far less embarrassing. 
Sin smacks of being on the outs with God who demands honest confession and a facing up to our guilt. We don't want to hear this. It makes us angry. But even more offensive is the idea of being sinners who have the potential for wickedness of the worst kind hidden in our hearts. Yahil Dinur survived the Holocaust of World War II. Many years later, he was called upon to testify at the trial of Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust. As he stepped into the courtroom, Dinur saw Eichmann, and he broke down in uncontrollable sobs. Was Dinur overcome by hatred, by fear, terrible memories? No, said Dinur to Mike Wallace of CBS News. I was afraid about myself. I am, ex- I am exactly like he, he said. We are capable of the worst kinds of sins. Any of us is. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. We do not understand God. We do not understand the most important things there are to understand about our relationship with God. Our mind has been affected by our sin. There is none who seeks after God. Now, Paul is speaking here, of course, of not seeking God unless the Holy Spirit moves us to do that. He is not saying that we are constitutionally incapable of seeking God. In Acts chapter 14, verse 26, you may remember in speaking to the Athenians, uh, Paul wrote these words, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, although he is not far from each one of us, he said. Now, people have a responsibility to seek God, but they are incapable of doing so without God's help. And that's what this psalm is referring to. There is none who seeks God without the Holy Spirit's enablement. And this reflects our heart. Uh, No one understands, that's mental. No one who seeks God, that's heart, all have turned aside. Together they have become become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. That refers to our wills. We have turned aside to bad things from good things. There is none who does good, not even one. All aspects of every person have been affected as well. Not only every individual, but all aspects of every individual. And Paul goes on in verses 13 through 18 to point this out. Their throat is an open grave. Uh, With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. All of these key words, of course, reflect our, our speech, our words, our throat, tongue, lips, mouth. All of these things are corrupt. Our words are not what they should be. 
And every one of us has erred somehow this week in this area of our lives. As James points out, there's nobody who can control his tongue perfectly. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. He says, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. Our words give us away. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. Here he's speaking of actions, the things that we do, where we go, what we do, the paths that we walk in life are not the paths of righteousness and peace. They are wayward paths designed to take us away from God. There is no fear of God before their, their eyes. And this, of course, reflects attitudes. Words, actions, and attitudes are all covered in this selection of six passages from the Psalms that pass this scathing judgment on all of humankind. No fear of God before their eyes. Now, this passage is one of the strongest and clearest passages in the Bible that teach the total depravity of human beings. The total depravity of human beings. By total depravity, I do not mean that everybody is as bad as he could be. That's not true. We could all be worse than we are. Total depravity means that every aspect of our being has been affected by sin. Our words, our actions, our attitudes, our hearts, our minds, our wills. This is a tremendously condemning series of of psalms because it lays bare what we really are like and it brings to a great climax what Paul has been arguing for throughout this passage, that we are... We are in bad shape with God because we fall short of the righteousness that he demands. The very end of this passage, this whole section, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, concludes in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, he's just quoted the law in this series of Psalms, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, That is, the Jews, the self-righteous. It's particularly for the benefit of those who consider themselves okay. That every mouth may be closed, that all objections may be silenced, and all the world may become accountable to God. In John chapter 7, verse 19 Jesus said, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? And that's Paul's point here as well. The law was never given for us uh, as a stair step to heaven. It was never designed to be ways in which we could attain heaven by obedience. 
it was given so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. A man who murdered several people told a reporter that he didn't feel guilty about his crimes because those he killed were destined to die the way they did anyway, he said. Kind of a fatalistic attitude. His senseless excuse is just another indication of man's unwillingness to admit, I am guilty. In talking with people who have done some things that are definitely immoral, this writer says, I have often encouraged, encountered this reaction, quote, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it. I'm not going to let you put me on a guilt trip. Ever hear that? I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm not going to let you put me on a guilt trip. Leading psychiatrist Willard Gallen feels that the emotion of guilt, quote, has been given a bum rap. He disagrees with counselors who say people shouldn't be made to feel guilty, which is very popular, of course, in our day. He advises, when you do bad, feel guilty. It's good for you, for the rest of us who share your environment, for you to feel guilty. (laughs) A lot of truth in that. That every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to, to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, no one will be justified, will be declared righteous in God's sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law, the purpose of the scriptures is to expose our need for righteousness It is not to provide righteousness for us. People who sometimes say, well, I just try and live by the golden rule. Even that is impossible, isn't it? All refrain from doing the things that we should not do. In Galatians chapter uh, 3 and verse 24, Paul made a similar point. He wrote, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. One of the reasons that God has given us his law is to show us that we need help from outside of ourselves, that we can't be right with God ourselves, that we need help from him. It's to lead us to Christ as the one who is the source of our righteousness. And probably most people have the exact opposite idea. They think that the Bible is simply a set of rules, and if we keep the rules, then we can be right with God. No, the Bible is, is there to tell us that we can't be right with God because God's standards are so high, they're impossible for us to attain, and we need help from outside of ourselves, a help that God himself provided in sending his Son, who suffered and died in our place, who bore the penalty for our sins, in his own body on the cross of Calvary. That's the purpose of God's law for us. It should expose our sin, not to provide righteousness for us. Well, in this section, Paul has been arguing that every human being needs the gospel because everyone is a sinner, 
and is under God's condemnation. Everyone. In this first major section of Romans that goes from 118 to 320, Paul pro- proved the universal sinfulness of mankind. He first showed the need of all people generally. Then he dealt with the sinfulness of self-righteous people particularly. He set forth three principles by which God judges and proved the guilt of Jews, God's chosen people, and answered four objections that Jews could offer to his argument in chapter 3, one ver- verses 1 through 8. Then he concluded by showing that the Old Testament also taught the depravity of every human being. Chapters, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Someone has said the, the gospel is only good news to those who realize they have a need. Uh, if you throw a life preserver to somebody who is in three feet of water, they're not going to grab it because they don't need it. And what Paul is doing in the first part of Romans he's, is he's showing that we are in deep water. We are in deep trouble with God, and therefore we need help from outside of ourselves. And as this book is going to unfold now, he's going to show us the answer to that problem. He's going to show how we can be right with God, not by keeping rules, but by accepting by faith a provision that God himself has made for us in sending his own son as our savior. Well, let's just uh, spend a little time in prayer. Let's uh, pray for the Billy Graham meetings this, uh, this coming week. And let's pray for our own witness that God will help us as we seek to help people come to Christ. Um, I don't think any of us should rejoice in the fact that we are all depraved sinners. <laughs> it's not something that we should feel good about uh, in comparison to other people that, that we have been saved and, and they're not. But it is certainly something that uh, we need to appreciate and to uh, hold out to people as, as what God has revealed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very stark and humbling revelation of what we are, that our words are not what they should be, our actions are not what they should be, Uh, We often fail to do things that we should do, as well as doing the wrong things, that our attitudes certainly are not 100% right. And all of this puts us in uh, jeopardy because of your perfection. And we thank you that even though we do, every one of us, fail in all of these areas, We thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have reached out to us in grace, that you've provided a way for us to come to know you and to actually possess the righteousness that you have. And we thank you that it is through faith in your Son. We pray that if there are any here this morning that have never trusted in you, that have never seen the issue, perhaps, uh, for what it is, We pray that you will help them today to acknowledge their sinfulness 
and to turn to you in faith for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. We pray, too, for Billy Graham and for the meetings that he will be having shortly. We pray for a good attendance. We pray that you will be preparing the hearts of all who do not know you that will be listening to him. We pray that multitudes will come to faith in Christ through uh, his meetings. And we pray, too, that you'll help each one of us as we have opportunity to speak to people who don't know you, um, to present the truth of your word attractively, winsomely, yet truly. In Jesus' name, amen.